0: this is let your voice be heard right here on whcr 93 fm the voice of harlem Good morning and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Happy Sunday, everyone. Happy Sunday. I hope you guys aren't as chaotic as we are behind the scenes. We have a lot going on. Um, if you're watching via stream, you know that I'm sitting in Stanley Fritz's chair. He's not here. He's, I think, in Albany this week. We don't care where he is. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> I do. I <laughs> Selena does. I wish Stanley was here. Stanley, you're a loser. Yeah, yeah. We love you. Well, you know what? When he's not here, it gives us the opportunity to make fun of him, right? So without any feedback. All right, guys. So um, enough with that. My name is Selena Hill. Um, again, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Selena Hill. And I spell miss with an M-S. You guys already know why. You should know why. Because she's not married. <laughs> because my marital status does not matter. So,
1: Alyssa, <laughs> hey, how, how's it going? Hey, good morning. I'm back from uh, my excursions in oh. ra- in in racist Virginia.
0: Oh, wow, West Virginia
1: or other Virginia? No, regular Virginia. Oh boy, how was that? It's, you know, it was good. It was, it was racist. it was racist. You know, it, yeah, it was good. It was interesting. Um, you know, it's like you hear a lot about like the way other people are throughout the country. But when you live in New York, a lot of times you don't really see it right right up front. Um, at least in New York, a lot of what I deal with is like institutionalized racism within our criminal justice system. Whereas when I was out there, I got to see some... Individual racism, I guess we'll call it, which is not like the systematic kind. Obviously, it plays into the systematic and systemic kind, but um, just individuals that are racist, which I don't
0: encounter all that often here in New York City. So, right. Absolutely. You know what? We live pretty much in a filter and a little bubble. And like, like I tell my friends all the time, I'm like, my white friends are extremely woke. Like, what do you mean? And then I remember that. It's just my little bubble. But, um, guys, so we have a great show lined up. And, of course, Let Your Voice Be Heard is the show where we tackle politics, social issues, foreign policy. And we do all of this from a millennial perspective. Again, Stanley Fritz is not here. Jackie Cohen is not here. But I'm here, Selena Hill. And I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs. We have a great show lined up. You know what? This show, we are going to be talking about socialism. Um, That's something that we have been wanting to talk about here and let your voice be heard for years. And we didn't really have an opportunity. But we're going to talk about the myths, the history, the realities, the concerns. And we're going to start the the conversation off talking about democratic socialism, what that is, what that looks like. And we have a very special in-studio guest who will be joining us for that conversation. And then later on... We are going to have a conversation about Venezuela. There is so much chaos, so much uh, crisis going on in this country. Um, in, uh, we know Hugo Chavez, has, um, he died a few years ago, and now the country seems to be in ruins. And we know that that's you know, a socialist country itself, and it doesn't seem like socialism is working there. And we'll discuss when, why why exactly that is happening in Venezuela. And we have a very special expert who will be calling in to the show later on to help us delve into that conversation. Last but not least, since we're talking about the world going in ruins, we're going to talk about why Donald Trump decided that the U.S. should withdraw from the Paris climate agreement. So Alyssa is going to give us a a quickie slash rant. If you can brief, uh, brief us really quickly, Alyssa, on what we can expect.
1: Uh, Yes. So um, basically, uh, the president announced or the so-called president announced that we were going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. um, And that, you know, a lot of people have been very concerned about that. I am very concerned about that as well. Um, But it is like a four year long winding down process. So it's not something that's going to happen right away. And what you another thing you really should know, and I'll go into more detail later, is that the next president, um, uh, presuming it's not Donald Trump, uh, has the ability to opt us back into the Paris Agreement. Paris Agreement. So there is a lot to be said about getting out there and voting and making your voice heard, especially in the upcoming um, 2018 elections, and then again in the 2020 election, because the that is going to have a direct impact on whether we actually go forward with leaving the Paris Agreement or not.
0: Absolutely. Thank you again, Alyssa, guys. So again, we are going to be talking about the Paris Agreement, socialism, everything that's going on with racism because, you know, it's let your voice be heard. That's what we talk about. So don't go anywhere. We're going to go on a quick break. But when we come back, we're delving into these topics. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs, Stanley Fritz, Jackie Cohen. They have the Sunday off. But the show must go on. So as I mentioned before we went to break, we're going to dedicate a large portion of this show to really dissect socialism. Now, there's different types of it. But the question I have for you guys is, what do you think of when you hear the word socialism, do you associate that with government control, dictatorships, a lack of freedom, or do you think of uh, socialism as um, something that's analogous with um, economic equality, the common good, the eradication of poverty? Well, That is exactly what we are going to discuss. We're going to dispel the myths around socialism. We're going to uh, talk about the truth of socialism. And we're going to question whether this political ideology actually works and benefits society. Later on in the show, we'll talk about if it's actually benefiting Venezuela. So, but for now, we're going to start this show off with a conversation about democratic socialism, which has become... More popular following the election of President Donald Trump. Now, since the 2016 election, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA for short, has seen an influx in its membership. Now, this was a group that was founded in 1982. And has since been becoming more mainstream since uh, per, uh, Bernie Sanders. He had a very popular presidential campaign and we all know he identified himself as a democratic socialist. So since that happened, um, statistics show that the DSA uh, there was an influx in the DSA uh, recruitment uh, starting when Bernie Sanders started uh, peaking back in mid 2015 uh, and it's just been it's just been a rising since then Another reason why I think the DSA is experiencing such a surge in recruitment is because I think a lot of people on the left just feel disillusioned by the Democratic Party and especially by corporate Democrats so I mean, more and more people are joining and although it's uh, it's just now becoming more mainstream and more popular you know the DSA has actually been instrumental in uh, uh, moving a lot of progressive movements and reform since the early of 20th century in the early of uh, 20th century and what they stand for even though it's not a it's not a party um, it's more like a national political advocacy organization and it crusades for policies such as raising minimum wage to $15 Universal health care, free college tuition, safer working conditions, things that actually benefit us in our society. Right. But um, it doesn't it does not have a good rap. And in fact, Republicans use the word socialist to smear Democrats all the time. I mean, I remember when President Barack Obama was president, he they called him. They said that he was promoting a socialist agenda when he was not <laughs> but that wouldn't be a bad thing, <laughs> like necessarily. So, um, it depends how you do it, right? It depends on how you do it and what you mean. So, again, like I said, uh, we have a very special guest here with us who is going to help us talk about. Democratic Socialism and exactly what the Democratic Socialists of America is doing uh, here in New York City and across the nation. So we have with us Jen James. She is a costume technician. She's a socialist organizer with DSA. She's also a member of the Society of Ethical Culture. She serves as the secretary for the Uptown slash Bronx branch of DSA. And she's part of the socialist feminist working group of DSA. Hold on. I'm not done yet. (laughs) She also leads a team of canvassers for the New York health act uh, in Brooklyn. So she's doing a lot of work on the ground for DSA. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're very happy to have you here in studio with us on let your voice be heard. And guys, I just want to let you guys know if you are listening and you want to chime into this conversation about democratic socialism, if you are a democratic socialist or if you despise the word or the system, call us up and let us know. The number is 212-650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And Alyssa is taking comments and questions at Politically Preposterous. I'm
1: taking them at Politically Preposterous. And we're also taking them on Facebook Live on the Let Your Voice Be Heard Facebook
0: live page absolutely so if you're watching us via facebook live so leave them there so jen you know i I just gave a briefing on what the democratic society association is um if you can tell us what i want to before we delve into what dsa does and what you're doing as a leader um, let's talk about what is socialism what's the difference between socialism and democratic socialism Mm
2: -hmm. um this is a great question because uh socialism communism marxism uh has not had the best history. Uh there we have the USSR, uh, and everything that has happened uh in you know, various communist countries that um does not really reflect what we believe is democratic socialists. Um and so I would say the defining characteristic of democratic socialism is that um Uh, We want to bring control to the communities and to the people. And so in um, past communist countries, there has been a lot of central planning, um, a lot of bureaucracies that come from the top down. Democratic socialism is from the bottom up. And so uh, we are trying to empower communities, empower people to take back their power uh, instead of. Uh, in order to redistribute wealth to everybody and not just the
0: few people on top. Why do you think that this type of socialism can work in our country and actually make it better? Um,
2: Well, it works in other countries. Uh, You know, you have uh, Norway and Sweden and Denmark, um, and they they have their problems. uh, But on the whole, their citizens, uh, they have you know, much less income inequality, uh, which is and uh, it creates political instability, which we're seeing right now. Um, you know, they have much better health care. They um, are all overall a more equal society. So it is possible and we can do it.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, you make democratic socialism sound so good. Yep. So wonderful. Why is it that it still gets such a bad rap? And like even when Bernie Sanders, you know, articulated what democratic socialism is Republicans still use that against him and I remember even a lot of people on the left a lot of Democrats were saying we cannot run him on the Democratic ticket because he's a socialist why is it getting such a bad rap
2: well I think um, it goes to show just how far to the right America has gone in the last um, 30 years uh, you know the, the alt-right is not a new thing uh libertarianism is not a new thing. This is a a system that has been systematically taking back power and pushing American politics to the right for many decades now um and so i you know i you, what you have to realize is that Bernie Sanders is not a radical candidate um he is a New Deal Democrat of you know fifty years ago um and so uh DSA is here to show that uh socialist is not it, it can be a radical thing. And in order to create socialism in America, we have to make radical changes. But the ideas it espouses is not inherently inherently radical. And these things can be normal and can benefit everybody.
1: Right. No, I mean, listen, I agree with that. Part of the thing is, I, I the one thing I'll say is I'll slightly disagree with you in that we like, is that I think we already have some socialism here in America and we have for a long time and people actually like it and they don't make the connection between things that they like that are quote unquote socialist. Um, and the fact that it is like, for example, snow plows, when it snows, the snow plows come down your road and they plow the road, right? That's the government. That's your tax dollars at work. Um, and the government taking care of something for the good of the people, meaning we all pay in to have snow plows, and when it snows, the government takes care of it for us, um, and you don't actually have to go out and plow your own roads in order to be able to go fo- go to work, go to school, et cetera. Um, there are other examples of this, like public schools, like public libraries. Um, people like the fact that when you go to the library, it doesn't cost any money to take a book out. Well, where do you think that you know money comes from to turn on the lights in the library every day, to buy those books for the library? Well, it comes from taxpayer dollars um, And people like it So there are lots of programs that we already have here in America That are democratic socialists That are not scary, that people use all the time um, And that it, it's sort of this disconnect um, Because people hear socialism And they think of Soviet-style socialism With a central planning government Or they think of national socialism Which is like Hitler But that's not actually socialism either That's fascism, which is a right-wing ideology Not a left-wing ideology I mean, at its core, Karl Marx Perspective was that when socialism Moves forward there is no need for government At all Um, because as you point out Communities do it themselves we are Getting some comments um, on let your voice Be heard radio about this exactly which is um, Kevin Quick says FDR Saved America using democratic socialism Our country was doing great until Reaganomics destroyed our middle class and then He also said you are right we have many examples Of socialism Americans love their Socialist programs
0: absolutely Jen I want to give you a chance to chime in there
2: Um, I just want to add that uh, Social Security is one of the most popular Programs that has ever come out of The United States government um, And that is a very socialist program Right? We all pay into it And we all get out of it
1: Hopefully, Um, if it's left for
2: us Well, yeah, I know, well, Republicans Are going to ruin it for everyone, so my generation Is uh, a little S.O.L.
0: Um, But You you know, I I had a question if I could just jump In here uh, really quickly, so Based on what you guys are saying, it sounds like the right has just done a marvelous job in either dumbing down America or moving their propaganda machine to convince us that things that we should be wanting and should help us, we shouldn't want, right? And we should be advocating for things that only benefit the billionaire class. The billionaire class. Would you say that uh, capitalism is something that is hurting America? Uh,
2: Yes. And so um, I would highly recommend everybody read Dark Money. Um, It is a fantastic book about how, the author's name is escaping me right now, Um, but it is about um, how the Koch brothers specifically have used their masses of capital and wealth to buy off politicians uh, and move, Uh, politicians farther to the right Um, and so this I mean they funded the Tea Party the Tea Party um, is a populist movement that um, was very deeply funded by the Koch brothers and their uh, peers Uh, so and they feed off of this sort of racist libertarian um, views that that people have in this country and then they We're able to give it money and then shape it in a way um, that is libertarian, that redistributes capital from the poor to the wealthy on uh, the backs of these racist viewpoints.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's correct. I also think part of it is that they used it as a way to mask their racism in some way towards Obama, right? Which is people who were unwilling to outwardly, and of course, there was people that were outwardly racist towards Obama, but people who are unwilling to be outwardly racist threw the word socialism around, and you know, in terms of modern examples, to be like, oh, he's a socialist. Meanwhile, Obama was a corporate Democrat. I mean, sure, there are things that Obama did that I really like, and there are things that he did that I dislike. Um, I don't. Want want to get into a rehashing of a conversation about that, but in, at no point at any time was Obama really a socialist. The other point that I want to make is this interesting thing about who socialism is for, right? And this idea that there's we already have, not aside from the socialism that we already have in this country that's not scary that I already mentioned, this idea of socialism for the rich, um, but not for the poor, which is, you know, right now we have a situation where in 2008, when the banks crashed our economy and basically we're going broke, what did we do? The taxpayers bailed them out. That was literally like a socialist bailout, which is we were then redistributing money um, upwards from the poorest people, from the middle class people, from regular American taxpayers to the banks, to these big things. And, and we see this today in the ta- kind of the Bush tax cut policy that Republicans want to do. It is still the redistribution of wealth. Instead of redistributing wealth from the rich down to the poor, which is what democratic socialism essentially aims to do, it redistributes wealth from the poor and the middle class up. Upwards to the richest people, because guess what? When they get these tax cuts, they're supposed to take this money and they're supposed to trickle it down to the rest of us. But they don't actually trickle it down to the rest of us. They just keep the money because they're greedy. And so this we already have what I like to call reverse socialism for the rich. And so that's what I don't understand about this political disconnect between poor and middle class. People And in particular, poor and middle class white people living in the Midwest that constantly vote against their own interests and vote for Republicans that want to redistribute money anyway. And they claim they're doing it because, oh, my God, we don't want redistribution redistribution and we don't want, you know, taxes or theft. But what's really happening is the money's being stolen from them and given to the rich, and the rich is not rich are not helping them out at all. That's why we see such large income inequality.
0: That has to change. Absolutely, Alyssa, guys. And again, if you want to chime in, the number is two one two six five zero six nine zero three. Keep leaving your comments on our Facebook live feed. You can also tweet us at beheard underscore America. We're actually gonna go on a quick break, but when we come back, we're gonna talk to Jen about exactly what the Democratic socialists of america are doing here in uh are doing here in our country as well as here in new york city so don't go anywhere this is let your voice be heard We are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. If you are feeling the 90-2000 vibes, we're playing here it's in the throwback show. Here's Throwback Day. It's Throwback Sunday here because Stanley's not here. And we don't have access to our music CDs, <laughs> but we are improvising, so we are just DJing. So, welcome to Throwback Sunday. So if there's a <laughs> throwback right. that you want to
1: hear, give us a call. And we'll try and get it on the air for you, but we make no promises. Right, we make no promises.
0: All right, guys. So again, my name is Selena. Hill. I'm here with my co-host Alyssa Fuchs. We have very special guests with us: Jen James. She is a socialist organizer with the Democratic Socialists of America. She's also not afraid to call herself a socialist or a Democratic socialist. And I think more of us, uh, once we have an understanding of what this uh, theology means, what how it and how it's already being implemented in our country, and we're benefiting from it then we too will no longer look at socialism or democratic socialism as this big, bad, scary thing. So, Jen, we know that you um, are are one of the leaders at DSA, especially here in New York City. So tell us more about what Democratic Socialists of America, um, what they do and what you are doing here in New York. Okay, great.
2: Um, So the DSA is a pretty um, big tent Uh, organization. So we have a lot of different viewpoints and we're working on a lot of different campaigns. Um, Some of our main campaigns are we are fighting to close uh, Rikers and the mayor has signed on to close Rikers. We think that his plan does not go far enough. Um, It does not take 10 years to close a prison. Um, And if you say it takes 10 years, then really, you know, he uh de blasio isn't even going to be mayor in 10 years so how the hell is he going to get it done um and also uh if we are to close rikers we want to make sure that we're not just pushing those prison populations into smaller jails but that we radically reform our bail system and our criminal justice system as a whole so that less people are in prison um absolutely uh, Absolutely, We are working on the Liberty Act, which will make New York a sanctuary state, um, which will cut ties between local law enforcement and ICE. Um, and in general, working to make uh, New York City truly a sanctuary city um, and not just uh, sort of that being a, a meaningless label that Bill de Blasio espouses. Uh, we are also working on the New York Health Act. I am very involved in that campaign the, and would could talk forever about the New York Health Act. It would create a single payer Medicare for all health care system. Um, and we, we are in the last days of the legislative session and we only need one more vote to get this bill passed. So single payer uh, can be a reality and should be. Um, we are also working on anti gentrification uh, campaigns, um, and uh, we have some labor solidarity. Well, well, what
0: about the the campaign to stop Harlem from turning into Soha? Uh, <laughs> are you guys a part of that? Um, I do not know specifically.
2: As far as I, I thought that the the Harlem rezoning had already gone into effect, or had already been voted on and decided. Um, so that, I, so I'm not really sure. We are involved with the Jer- Jerome Ave uh, rezoning, um, and trying to make sure that uh, that will benefit the people currently living in the neighborhoods. But I, housing is one of the topics I'm not terribly involved in, so I can't really speak to it. Um, And we are also uh, have a big labor solidarity uh, campaign going on with the B&H workers uh, who have been fighting for years to have a union. Um, And now that they have it, their bosses want to move their their warehouse to New Jersey, which would um, completely break their union. Because uh, if you are working in Brooklyn, you cannot get 75 miles away to New Jersey.
0: Absolutely. Alyssa? Alyssa? Uh,
1: yeah, no, actually, I think those are all great things. We had um, Darren Mack on a couple weeks ago from Closed Rikers talking about the Close Rikers campaign. We totally agree that 10 years is not a realistic timeline. Um, we've talked with activists about making New York not just a sanctuary city, but a freedom city. Um, so which is uh, you should definitely look into that. Um, I did want to mention we got the name of the author who wrote Dark Money. That's Jane Meyer. So if you do want to check that out. Um, but I know that you're working on healthcare, So I'll ask you a question about that specifically. So there was an article in the New York Times that came out today that said um, that the Democratic Party is going to move uh, further to the left, at least in their platform. Um, Also in California, there was a vote uh, to go towards single payer. In New York, there has been talk about going towards single payer. Uh, Yet a study that was published in January by the Pew Research Center that actually does do very good studies. So I wouldn't say that they'd be very biased biased so much, found that only about 40 percent of Democrats favor single payer. Um, Including a slight majority of self-described liberal Democrats Um, But among all Americans They say just 28% said government Should be the sole provider of care However, three in five Americans Say that the government has a responsibility To ensure everybody has health care So I guess the question is Number one, it's twofold One, why do you think we see this disconnect Between the fact that 28% of people only 28% of people say that we should have single payer. But then when you ask people differently, they, when you ask that question differently, three in five say that the government does have a responsibility to ensure everybody has health care. It seems like there's a disconnect. And secondly, um, if the number is that low, how do we reach these people to explain to them what single payer is and how it can benefit them?
2: Um. Well, your wording there is important. 28% of people think that uh, health care should be provided for by the government. And what the New York Health Act does creates a publicly funded system of privately delivered health care, um, which means that the government's going to pay for it through taxes. But um, the government does not control your doctors. It does not control prescri- uh, prescription companies or medical device uh, companies and the like. Um, and so... It is important how you word these things, because as of right now, um, the government already pays a tremendous amount of money for our sure. health care. Um, about 60 percent of healthcare care costs currently are being paid by the U.S. government. So this is not. Um, uh, so I think people think that to implement single payer it's going to cost a lot of money. But the reality is, is that the government is already paying a large part of that money.
1: Right. I mean, listen, two-thirds of our health care spending in this country, Medicare and Medicaid, make up, I'm sorry, make up, Medicare and Medicaid make up two-thirds of the spending budget, which means basically, and we already have a single-payer system for elderly people for the most part. It's not a true single-payer or true universal health care system like they have in England. Um, but Medicare and Medicaid are as basically as close as you're going to get. And if you ask people, the majority of people who have Medicare and Medicaid like the system. Um, Before I throw back to Selena, I should mention, one, I have done a breakdown of why single payer wouldn't actually potentially raise your taxes on a previous show. Uh, And two, I lived in Europe. I had actual access and experience with a single payer health care system. And it was great. I got sick when I was living abroad in England and I was able to go see a doctor for free. I only had to wait 24 hours. And the only reason I had to wait 24 hours is because I was an American citizen and I had to wait for my registration to go through with the British NHS system. But after that, I saw a doctor right away. There was no waiting period, which is a big concern of people who are, you know, say we shouldn't go to single payer. And the prescription cost me 18 quid, which is like the equivalent of like, you know, 30 bucks. Um, But like. That was next to nothing. And that was only because of the exchange rate. Otherwise, it would have cost me even less. I mean, there are absolute benefits to having a single payer system.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, no, I, I do want to switch gears a bit because um, despite all the work, all the great work that DSA is doing, especially you, Jen, and that we commend you for, the DSA gets a bad rap. It gets a lot of criticism when it, because it is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong overwhelmingly white and it leaves the impression that it's dominated by bernie bros so what is dsa doing to diversify its ranks and combat that negative impression so that more millennials uh, of color and more people of color in general won't be so turned off
2: Uh, this is a great question because dsa does have a big diversity problem Um, and i say this as a white woman Um, and I think it's important to break down why we need to have diverse voices inside of DSA. um, And that's because the progressive left has a long history of well-meaning white people creating these progressive movements that completely erase uh, the voices of people of color. Um, And so we need to get uh, more diversity of the membership, but also of the leadership to make sure that um, we are including everybody in our movement. Um, And so we are actively trying to um, make DSA look like the communities or reflect the communities that we are a part of. Um, And so we are reaching out to... Um, We're trying to form coalitions with community organizations that are already in our neighborhoods that have been working in our neighborhoods for decades and doing a lot of the important work um, and trying to support them to to show up. And, um, you know, not our, our I would say our biggest strategy is to show up and do the work and help with these organizations whether that's um you know stacking chairs or um, volunteering in any way and not trying to co-opt uh, community organizations that are already there into our message, but to support them with their message.
0: Well, well, Here's the thing. I know that DSA uh, primarily focused on economic equality. If you really want to attract more people of color, do you think that it would be possible for you guys to take on issues like mass incarceration, police brutality, other things that would welcome um, people of color who are actively fighting these issues and of course we want economic justice as well but it seems like you know when it comes to priorities here if i fear for my life that whether it's going to be my father my uncle my brother you know they can walk outside and be killed be shot dead and like I just feel like that is so prevalent within communities of color do you think DSA should and will tackle these issues Um,
2: yes well we are we have a racial justice uh, working group that focuses on these issues and we could always do more, of course. But um, I I think that mass incarceration is an economic issue um, because it takes people, not only does it take people out of the labor force while they're in prison, but then it creates this whole um, second-class citizen where it's impossible for people to find work after they have a felony if they have to report that. Um, and it uh, creates a, a downward cycle that keeps uh people and communities trapped in poverty and yes of course we absolutely have to break that
0: i agree with you so Alyssa, i want to throw something to you here and i know if you have a comment on something else but the question i definitely want to get in is should democratic socialists be democrats What's your what's your take on that? Well,
1: so my opinion is, yes, I actually think that the rebirth of the Democratic Party will be for the Democratic Party to go back to its roots. And by that, I don't mean the racist KKK part of the Democratic Party. I mean, the FDR roots of the Democratic Party. I mean, FDR was by and large a Democratic socialist. The New Deal program that FDR in place was the largest social expansion program that was meant to expand the middle class, greatly reduce the amount of people living in poverty and also reduce the amount of of income inequality that you saw um, post the Great Depression era. So my thought is, yeah, I would like to see more Democratic Socialists running on the Democratic ticket. Um, We did have on the show um, back during the election season, Eric Bjorn, who was uh, running on a green-blue ticket. It was a combination between a Green Party ticket um, and a Democratic ticket. Obviously, I think that there is a lot of opportunities for Democratic Socialists um, to get involved. And I think that's also how you're going to bring the fight to the forefront against neoliberal and corporate Democrats, which I don't think it's necessarily going to be to run against them on a different party line. I think it's going to be to primary them the way the Tea Party did to the Republican Party and get those voices. I mean, the the Tea Party had a lot of political power, and they were able to do that not because they ran on a Tea Party line. They did that because they ran as Republicans and they ran against Republicans. David Brett beat Eric Cantor. There are great young millennials that are Democratic Socialists that are part of the DSA And even those that are not and that can be and should be running as Democrats. And so I absolutely think that they should be. um, And I don't think that we should have another party. I think that's only going to split the left even further. I think the left needs to come together.
0: I always say it's time for the left to take a page out of the Tea Party's book. Jen, I want to get your thoughts on this. Should the Democrat uh, should Democrat uh, the Democratic Socialists. Do you think that they should be more like the Green Party? Or do you think that we should be working within the Democratic Party?
2: I see this as a question more of tactics than ideology. Um, So really, I think it's what's practical in that election. Uh, Your points about primary is... Very important. And you can use um, primaries as a way to push uh, current elected officials farther to the left, uh, even if you don't win those elections. Um, And another point I want to make is that it's very important to do these electoral politics on a hyper local level. So um, DSA is endorsing a couple of candidates uh, for city council. And uh, we are trying you the the problem with the Green Party is that they tend to focus way too much on the presidential election, which is like something they're never going to win. And they're (laughs) never even going to uh, get enough support to pressure the Democratic Party to move farther to the left. Um, And so you you have to without having that support on city levels on state levels uh it you you can't um,
0: but I mean, but 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 with the Green Party, one thing that they do successfully, even though, first of all, they do uh, run candidates on the local and state levels. We just don't hear about them. The reason why it's so much focused on the presidential ticket is because they get a lot of publicity around that. And if it wasn't for Bernie Sanders identifying as a Democratic socialist, this influx wouldn't even have been here. So I think it's actually a good thing. It can be a good thing that the Green Party always runs during presidential elections because it's just, just when it comes to publicity.
1: I don't think so. Really? uh, Yeah, because I think,
0: like, it. I mean, like,
1: if you just look at the numbers, and I don't want to get into a conversation rehashing the election, but um, you know, like, Jill Stein got more votes in Wisconsin than Hillary Clinton lost by, right? And that's not to say if she wasn't on the ticket, those people necessarily would have gone out and voted for Hillary. Those those seventy five thousand people that voted for Jill Stein may have stayed home. They may have written somebody in. Um, There's a whole, you know, there's a whole host of things that could have happened. But the fact is, like, I think that. I don't think that you should just get your due and your come-up every four years around the presidential election. I think that if Jill Stein and the Green Party honestly wants to be taken seriously, they shouldn't just run a few candidates here and there that you don't hear about, as you pointed out. They should run in local elections, and you should hear about those things, you know. and they should get more publicity in their local stuff rather than just every four years where they just kind of act as spoiler, in my opinion.
2: And the problem with the Green Party is that um, they're so focused on these big campaigns that they don't do more of that local work uh, with local organizing we need to organize our communities better we need to figure out how you do you how you um, what is organizing and how do you do it Um, we have the left has sort of devolved into these sort of shallow mobilizing campaigns where you will have you know campaigns around single issues that come and go as they please, but we need to get better as coming together as a class and forming solidarity. Mm-hmm. And the Green Party doesn't do that. DSA does that. Well, um, well, Although it's not a competition between the two of us. Right,
0: <laughs> we are here to unite the left. We are uniting the left. Before Alyssa closes us out with a statement, Jen, I just want to give you a chance to let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and if they are interested, join the Democratic Socialists of America, especially the New York chapter here Um, Well, I'm not a big social media person, so the best way to get in
2: contact with me is to come to the next DSA meeting. Um, It's going to be June 22nd from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Andrew Friedman House up in the Bronx. Uh, The address is 1125 Grand Concourse. It's off the 167th station at the BD or 4. That is June 22nd, next DSA meeting. Um, I'm also on Instagram at... uh, B I T C H Y (laughs) Stitcher. (laughs) Thank you for spelling that out for (laughs) us. (laughs) We appreciate that. Um, And so, uh, or you could email me at jlaureljames at gmail.com. That's jlaureljames at gmail.com. And I really sincerely encourage um, all. everyone every person of color to come out and join the dsa we need you we need your voices and we will not uh, be a quality movement without Oh, if we don't have your voices thank, so.
0: thank you again Jen for joining the show Alyssa final words um, Yeah so I, my final words <laughs> is
1: this Socialism is not scary it's already here We've been doing it forever it's not something You should be scared of um, especially Not democratic socialism Democrat. The is it, the definition of a democrat Is something that's by the people And the definition of a socialist is something that's For the people our constitution says That we are having a government of the people For the people and by the people um, We have we very often use socialist programs such as public schools, social security, uh, the public library, um, public trash pickup. And the fact of the matter is, is there's many different ways that we can move forward using socialists and democratic socialist programs to make a better country, a better society and a better world. I think that we all need to get involved. We need to use this as part of the resistance and that we need to put pressure um, on Democrats that we feel are promoting corporatist neoliberal policies and say this is not the way we want to move forward and if we are not happy with our elected officials then we should consider running ourselves especially millennials um, young people and people of color we our voices need to be heard there's a possibility for them to be heard um, and I absolutely will recommend that you go out get involved and continue to resist because that's what we have to keep doing.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for those closing words. Guys, we're going to go on a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're talking Kofifi. We're talking Bill Maher. We're talking LeBron James during the news roundup.
1: I'm not even going for it. is what I'm going to say. You, you got what I need. But you say he's just a friend. And you say he's just a friend.
0: And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3. I found the voice of Harlem. And, of course, on Let Your Voice Be Heard, we talk politics. We talk social issues. We talk foreign policy. And we do that all from a millennial perspective. I'm your host, Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs. Stanley Fritz. What, what? Jackie Cohen. Not here. Losers. Yes. I'm sorry, Jackie. We have to fit you into that category because you're not here with us. You know she's in, like, San Francisco. I know She's like on vacation yep. like
1: Paddling And yep. her boyfriend's Trying to talk her into Moving to San Francisco Apparently No Jackie, Jackie Do not leave Jackie, Jackie said on Facebook Yesterday that She wouldn't move To California Unless she could find A good slice of pizza there And that's highly <laughs> unlikely So I guess that means She has to come back To New Yay. York uh, Stanley of course Is being a loser In Albany
0: We don't know What he's doing there But it's probably Some good work It's probably It's probably Community related wise. So uh, speaking of Community um, we want to start off the news roundup with a story that is very near and dear to our heart. Um, there was an attack in London last night, Saturday night. Um, I think about seven people were killed. Uh, apparently, some extremists who probably identify with ISIS uh, went on a rampage. But we don't know yet. Well, we don't know. That. I think uh, Prime Minister Theresa May, she already said that they were Islamic extremists, though. She
1: said that the country believes they are, but mm-hmm. they haven't actually at least publicly released the names or identities or, you know, um, of these people. So right. we
0: really don't know. But 12 people were arrested and people were killed. Lives, lives were taken last night. And. Alyssa gives her thoughts. I give my prayers. Um, and, and we wanted to just start off the news roundup talking about this because, you know, just nine weeks ago, London experienced another terrorist attack. So, you know, terrorism is happening all across. Account- all across the world, um, but it comes in different forms and it comes in different colors. We have terrorists here who are Christian, who are white. You have terrorists who identify as Islamic extremism. It's something that is ongoing. It's something that has always um, been an issue across our or across the country and across the world. And it's something that we need to do all we can to make sure we are unifying people around love and not isolating people and um, antagonizing people to join these groups. We need to understand them and we need to make sure that we educate them enough so that they use rationale uh, and help this world become better, not worse. So Alyssa, did you have any other final thoughts on that? No,
1: absolutely. That covers it all. Obviously, you know, we, um, you know, we're very sad to hear about this story and, uh, you know, we hope that, um, Everybody is all right, and, you know, those people that are injured get quick Sorry, get um, better quickly. Yes, absolutely. No. You know, what, Listen, I'll be honest. You guys told me to slow down, right? Because everybody's been saying I'm talking too fast, which I am. I acknowledge that.
0: Um, but in that, I'm like, now I feel like I'm going too slow. Alyssa, <laughs> you're doing a great job regardless. Um, so I-, I wanted to just move on to something else that's really been irking me. And if Bill Maher has been irking you, call us up. The number is 212 650 Three, tweet us at be heard underscore radio or leave a comment on our Facebook live if you're watching. So Bill Maher took it upon himself on Friday on his TV show on HBO to drop the n-word and not just drop in any type of way. He used the ER version and on top of that he called himself a house n-word ER. I have been absolutely appalled and I know that a lot of people on the left and the right are saying that him dropping the N-word is not even a big surprise. Why? Because he continues to say things that are problematic. And we've saw, uh, he made a number of remarks that came across as either transphobic or Islamophobic. So he, and he even has said things that have been even sexist. So a lot of people are saying, now why is this the line? Um, I personally think that, you know, I've critiqued bill maher i've also watched him i also support him as one of the leading voices on the right excuse me on the left um who happened to have a national tv show but a lot of things don't sit well with me and of course him using the n-word in this way very casually like he can just drop the n-word like he's some black man is wrong and i personally think he needs to be kicked off air alissa do you think he should be fired no I don't.
1: I Tell don't. me why. I disagree with his use of the word, but uh, he's on HBO. It's not public TV. It's cable TV. Um, I think he's been a great voice in terms of pushing back against the right. Um, I absolutely disagree with his use of the word. Um, I will defend his right to fe- free speech, however. Um, you know, and also the other thing that I want to point out is like, you know, l- yes, I think we should criticize him for using the word, but uh, the fact is he's been so outspoken, and like, you know, there's so much racism on the right. There's so much we're fighting against on the right like we should criticize those people that say things that are not appropriate for them to be saying but at the same time we shouldn't eviscerate the people that are speaking out the most and uh, that's not to say that there aren't other people speaking out but like bill maher yes he said many things that are problematic yes he's a comedian um at the same time like he said lots and lots and lots of things that are really really good he has spoke out many many times against you know in favor of liberal issues um And, you know, there are so many problematic things that are being said on the right um, all the time by our adversaries that, like, I just don't think we should eat our own like that. But
0: I understand that, Alyssa. And I understand that even you, as someone who identifies as queer, give him a hall pass for the things he said that have been transphobic, especially by Caitlyn
1: Jenner. I've actually, I haven't given a pass on you that. You don't give him a whole pass? No.
0: Well, it's well, it sounds like, well, to me, I think this definitely draws a line. I understand that he is a smart man and he says things that I usually agree with. But the N-word, I think him using it like that, validates and legitimizes so many other racist people to do the same thing and if he does not face harsh consequences you're going to see more and more and more of it and it is appalling it is disgusting that word has been used first of all it's an attack on democracy here's the thing it's like where's the collective outrage when
1: right-wing politicians go on drudge or breitbart or any of these other places and say the word and then it's like as soon as the white liberal says it there's like so much outrage oh, no, so that's, that, i mean like that's sort of where i find that there's a disconnect but I, I I will say, like I don't give him a pass. When he said problematic things, I'll call him out. But that doesn't mean I necessarily think he should be kicked off of his show.
0: All right, well, we'll agree to disagree there because I'm signing that petition. Get them off because it's only a matter of time before someone else uses the N-word in an even more disgusting manner. Like, what if they say we need to hang this N? Like, I, it's this is the line for me, definitely. But I know we do want to move on. Uh, Speaking of the N-word, guess who got called an N-word just a few days ago? Matter of fact, somebody spray-painted the N-word on his house. That's the LeBron James thing. Yep. They vandalized his home by spray painting the word N-word in, uh, in his home in Los Angeles. And I just want to say that I watched the press conference that he did uh, just hours before starting the NBA, uh, uh, going head to head in the NBA finals. And he was so visibly moved, like despite his wealth, despite all the power and influence that he had. It just goes to show that this racist slur, this disgusting word, still has power. It means a lot. It means that my ancestors have were enslaved because of this word. They were hung while they were hung, and this word was used to uh, was. They probably heard this word while they were being hung, and I think that it just. It exemplifies the nastiest, ugliest portion of America, and it still hits home for a lot of us. Now, on the other hand, there was another black man. His name slips me, but he was saying that LeBron James is too rich to actually um, succumb to racism, which I think is ridiculous.
1: Oh, my God, that is so ridiculous. I mean, listen, the Obamas just bought an $8 million home in Washington, D.C., and yet, you know, they're, throughout his entire presidency, they put pictures up of him with a noose, which is also why, you know, uh, the whole Kathy Griffin thing. Like, you know, you can disagree with with Kathy Griffin making that image, um, but, like, you know, for eight years, people were making burning effigies of Obama, um, you know, doing that. And so, like, you know, it's like one of those things where if you spent the past eight years posting Memes with um, Obama in a noose, then you can't cry foul when Kathy Griffin holds a severed head. Like this is the thing. This is kind of what I was getting at in the last part of the conversation, which is like it's almost like we have a double standard. Whenever somebody on the left does something that's questionable or possibly um, you know problematic, there's like this huge collective outrage. Um, meanwhile, whenever somebody something somebody on the right does it, like they get invited to the White House, literally, like. What's his name? Ted Nugent said that Obama and Hillary Clinton should be shot in the face and that Obama should be hung nobody on the right really said boo about it and then all of a sudden he gets invited to the White House to go hang out with Donald Trump. So it's like, it speaks to this point where it's like, you know what, if we're gonna say that these things are problematic, then we need to be saying that they're problematic all the time. Why is it always people on the left getting called
0: out for the problem for being problematic and why is it never anybody on the right calling getting called out for their actual racism? I can tell you why. And it's because we on the left we actually have some integrity, we actually have some dignity, and we hold ours accountable. I'm speaking a Bill omar as someone who watched the show supported him and actually liked at least 80 percent of the things that he said that's why and like michelle obama says when they go low we go high and apparently that's just who we are right i mean i get that although obviously people will disagree
1: i mean we were having a conversation with Stan the other day and he was like i ain't going high anymore <laughs> he was like i'm done with that um, yeah, you know that. who else is not going high anymore angela merkel mm. she's like nope, I can't mess with this Trump dude. Um, So just to give you a little background, obviously there's some rift going on right now between Germany and between Trump. That is mostly because Trump tweeted out all of these negative things about the country of Germany that weren't actually based in fact. I mean, but what else is new? Because when does Donald Trump ever tweet anything that's based in fact? I mean, you know, this week he was tweeting about
0: Kofifi and we don't even know what that is. Do you know? No, he said that a small portion of the White House and he actually knows. No Sean Spicer said there are people that know what kofifi means. That's 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 what was said. So if you don't know what we're
1: talking about about at the beginning of the week at like just after midnight Donald Trump tweeted out a tweet that was like the negative media and then the word looked like it was supposed to be coverage right. but it ended up being kofifi. Yep. C O V F E F E. And 5 minutes went by. And it didn't get deleted. And then 10 minutes went by and it didn't get deleted. And an hour went by and two hours went by and three hours went by. And it took about six hours before this tweet was accidentally deleted. But in that six hours sorry, was actually deleted. And in that six hours, the Internet blew up. Um, and everybody was tweeting about Covfefe, um, and making jokes about it and making memes about it. It was like the biggest thing since sliced bread last week. Um, and, you know. Obviously, people were saying that Kofifi somebody told me that it was, sorry, Jackie told me that it was Yiddish for I'm a loser. And somebody else told me that it was Russian for I resign, which are (laughs) all very funny. And then, of course, there was the people that are like, this is a distraction from all these other things that are going on. And, you know, that may be sort of true. But as I've said in the past, I think we can have some fun with these fun, crazy things that the president does. And still not get distracted and still be paying attention to the really important things that are happening, like the investigation or continued investigation into collusion with Russia. Um, you know, if you're distracted by these things, then don't pay attention to them.
0: But some of us are able to pay attention to all these things, and we don't find them necessarily distracting. I don't find it distracting at all. I think that him tweeting about Kofifi is extremely telling. And I forgot there was a right. I forgot which publication published it. But they were saying, oh, CNN. They published an article saying that him tweeting about Kofifi just goes to show that who Donald Trump is and the people he surrounded. He so has surrounded himself with. He has he has nothing but yes, men surrounding him. He has and he doesn't take any type of advice. There have been a number of Republicans, even some of his advisors, who have been trying to tell him very gently, you shouldn't be tweeting as much. And you shouldn't be tweeting like this. But he refuses to adhere to their advice. Why? Because he's a know it all and he thinks that he knows everything. And he thinks that he does not have to adhere to any to any to any rationale or reason. He thinks that what he's doing has has helped him win the election and that he's going to be the best president ever. So I think that when we look at it from an analytical perspective, it tells us who this man is. I mean, for many of us already know already knew who he was when he was running and campaigning because he told us but I mean I I look at it like that and I also think what's even more problematic is not the fact that he mistweeted but the fact that his White House and his White House press secretary Sean Spicer defended it like we're not stupid you cannot pee on my leg and tell me it's raining what that's exactly what they're doing we know it was a mistake but instead of Sean Spicer saying, Yeah, you know what? It was a mistake, he was saying, No, we know what Kofifi is. That's made up. It's a made up word. And this honestly is nothing but some bullcrap. And I'ma just leave it like that. Um uh, Alyssa? Yeah, I mean, there's like a famous line um, in
1: uh, the mo- the book 1984, where they essentially say is they when they tell you to deny what your eyes are seeing and your ears are hearing is the essential command of the government trying to take control. And I think that's a big thing about what we are seeing. Um, so, you know, we really need to be mindful of these things and we cannot let the president tell us that we are not seeing or hearing the crazy things that we are seeing or hearing we, you are not crazy you are seeing and hearing these things and disregard donald trump and the press co- the uh white house press briefing people when they try and tell you that you're not seeing the crazy things that you are seeing but on that note i think we're going to take a quick break yes um and when we come back we're going to have a great guest on the line talking about venezuela
0: And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, we are the show that talks about politics, social issues, and foreign policy from a millennial perspective. I'm your host, Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs. What's up? Uh, stanley our designated engineer is not here so bear with me jackie cohen our correspondent is living life in california so but we know that the show must go on and we just wrapped up a great conversation about socialism and democratic socialism we had a, a guest in studio here she was from the democratic socialists of america Uh, which is doing great work across the nation as well as here in New York City. And I mean, it's pretty convincing on why and how socialism works and has been working in our country when it comes to programs like Social Security and Medicare, etc. But it still has such a bad rap. And, um, you know, we wanted to continue this theme of talking about socialism um, for the entire show. And we know that Venezuela... A, a country that we've talked about in depth uh, a few years ago after Hugo Chavez died, uh, is a socialist country. But the crisis and in the, in the chaos in this country has gone from bad to worse. Um, if you guys haven't been uh, following it, as closely, let me just let you know that Goldman Sachs actually made a decision to buy over eight hundred and fifty million dollars worth of Venezuela government owned bonds. And they are making a huge profit off of what seems to be the ruins or or the downward the downward spiral of this country. Uh, and there's no telling if and when Venezuela would even be uh, able to pay it back now. On, and we're going to talk about that a little um a little more later on in the segment but in addition to that uh there are massive massive protests violent protests calling for the president to step down uh and he has not he refuses uh president uh, maduro is still there and there's ag- there's a number of allegations that he has violated human rights and he is uh, abusing he is uh, abusing human rights there um and on top of that There's a lack of necessity for a lot of basic needs in this country uh, when it comes to food, when it comes to medicine. So and for the most part, I see a lot of people on the right questioning if socialism is working in Venezuela. And they also make the argument of why socialism doesn't work. They say, look at Venezuela uh, and completely ignoring what's going on in Sweden and Denmark and other countries where this uh, type of organization, uh, this type of theology uh, works. But they're, 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 they're criticizing Venezuela and are criticizing people who happen to identify as democratic socialists on the left. And, and, and this is and this is exactly what they use as a prime example. So to help us uh, talk about what exactly is going on in Venezuela and why it seems like this situation is going from bad to worse. We have a very special guest on the line who has uh, joined us. She is calling in. Her name is Professor Jennifer McCoy. She is a distinguished professor of political science at Georgia State University. She is also a specialist on uh, the polarization and democratization. Uh, She is also a specialist in Latin American politics. And plus, she is a author and her latest book is international mediation in venezuela Uh, on top of that she also teaches courses on latin american politics so we are very excited to have professor mccoy joining us here on let your voice be heard good afternoon professor good afternoon thanks for having me Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you so much. So I gave a little uh, briefing on what's going on in Venezuela. Um, If you can just let us know, uh, you you know, in the last few years since Hugo Chavez died, what's been happening on the ground there?
3: Yeah, well, it's they've had a very difficult time. um, And one of the first things we have to look about is look at is when President Chavez died in 2013 was the last year of really high oil prices. So oil prices have been going down since then, since 2014, when Nicolas Maduro came in to succeed him as president. So that's one one factor. But it's also partly the legacy of what Chavez was trying to, to create. And so you were talking about socialism and democratic socialism um, today in your show. Chavez had this idea that he called the 21st century socialism. So he wanted to distinguish that from the socialism in the, the old Soviet Union and Cuba and China. And but it was never clear exactly what he meant. So what it actually is is in Venezuela is the government took over a lot of private companies and private farms. And the government actually already controlled the, the main, the biggest company in Venezuela, which is the oil company. So the government actually controlled that since the 1970s, long before Chavez. But by taking over a lot of these companies, and the government had to manage them, but they didn't, but the whole country is not socialized. There is still some private sector, so it's really a mixed system. So that's the first thing to understand. But the other part of what he meant by 21st century socialism, this new concept, was he was trying to create a new kind of democracy. So, on the political side, besides the economic side, and on the political side, it is um, he wanted what he called participatory democracy. And he also called it protagonist democracy, but where the people would have more of a say. But he created a new kind of structure called a communal structure, so that people would have uh, communal kinds of, of sort of governments at their neighborhood level and going all the way up. The problem was it was confusing how that communal structure from the neighborhood level up to the city level and eventually uh, could be up to the national level, how that would relate to the elected kinds of institutions like the municipal council or the national legislature. And so that has never really been reconciled. So that's kind of the structure. But what's happened then in the last three years is that government economic policies have not adapted to the change in the oil prices And the government has not been able to manage all of these private companies and farms that they took over. They just haven't been able to run them. And so the country is not producing its own food anymore. It's not producing – it's even producing less oil than it was. And much of the manufacturing and everything else has been, you know, shutting down basically. So they have incredible shortages right now of medicine – And food, and that's why you see stories even of starving children in what should be a pretty rich. Country in Latin America.
0: Thank you so much for explaining that. Again, guys, if you are just tuning in, we have on the line with us Jennifer McCoy. She is a distinguished professor of political science at Georgia State University. She is also the author of International Mediation in Venezuela. And uh, my co-host Alyssa Fuchs wanted to chime into the conversation here.
1: Yeah, good afternoon. Um, so it sounds to me, just based on your explanation, that this is not—it never really was socialism at all or at least not in like the social democracy or democratic socialism sense that we were just talking about during our last segment, um, if they were taking total control of all of that. That almost sounds like a cross between communism and fascism. Um, so I was just hoping that you could clear up maybe where a little bit where this uh, economic and political system f- falls on the spectrum, uh, given that political and economic systems are different, but often interrelated. Um, and also maybe Speak to why this is not the kind of thing that we might see in America if we started to shift towards a more democratic socialist system.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, like I said, it was he meant it. He wanted to distinguish it from the 20th century socialism, which was totalitarian. So, if you look at the Soviet Union or at Cuba, you know the government did own everything, and it was not democratic. So, economically, it owned everything, and politically was run by a single party, the Communist Party, which didn't really allow choice for the people or control by the people. So Chavez won, didn't want that, and he tried to create something new, but it's not, it is also not the democratic socialism of the Scandinavian countries um, that you were talking about. Um, so it is, um, it, they have elections in Venezuela, they have had elections. The problem right now is that they In the last year, they have essentially canceled the elections that were scheduled. So they were supposed to have elections for governors, for example, last December, and they canceled them. They've now rescheduled them for this coming December, uh, but they also canceled one of these uh, direct democracy kind of initiatives that Venezuela really started, which was to have a recall referendum for the president if the people were unhappy with the way the president was governing In the new constitution that, under Chavez, they put in a provision that the people could sign petitions and if enough signatures were gathered, they could have a vote, a referendum to see if a president's term should be cut short. So we have that, for example, in California, um, they tried that at the governor's level in the United States. In some states, we have that, but not at the presidential level. So this was new, and um, they used this actually against Chavez back in 2004 but he won that referendum last year because of this crisis. I was talking about the shortages um, and uh, crime and, and then political um, dissatisfaction. Uh, the opposition was trying to have this recall referendum and get uh, petitions signed to do it. And the government canceled that initiative, stopped that initiative. So the democratic side right now is not functioning in Venezuela. And at the same time, I said it's a mixed economy, but they have so much constrained the ability of what's left of the private sector to act because the other part of what they're doing is controlling the foreign exchange, the currency, which means that when companies in Venezuela need to import something and they have to pay dollars to import parts or medicines or whatever they need for their company... um, they can't get the dollars to do it because the government is controlling it, and so the, the the whole economy is hamstrung. So that's why it's not functioning as kind of the ideal that you know you were talking about as a as a democratic socialist country. It's it's not a good model uh, of that.
0: Uh, so so so, um, uh, Dr. McCoy, if you can. Um... Sort of explain how that ties into the call for President Maduro to step down.
3: Yeah, well, what the people right now eighty per, in the public opinion polls eighty percent of the people are unhappy with this government, do not like the direction it's going. So, if there were an election, whether it was for a president, a, a, you know, presidential election or the recall referendum, he would almost certainly lose. And so they're not holding those elections because he doesn't want to lose, and his and his party doesn't want to leave power, for uh, well for a variety of reasons. But um, so so that is not able to occur now. It doesn't mean necessarily that those same eighty percent of the people favor the opposition political leaders. They have a, maybe fifty to sixty percent favorability in the polls, but eighty percent are against this government and want it to change. And want it to change its policies and and possibly change the people in it. So that that's where it stands, and that's why the protests are out in the streets. They want to have the right to have elections. They want to have uh, food and medicine. The 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 country is not letting in humanitarian aid, and so they want you know that to happen. Um, there are people who are imprisoned because of their political beliefs or their uh, you know. Uh, dissent and protest, so they want, they consider those political prisoners, so they want them released. Um, There's a very significant crime problem in the country. It's one of the countries with the highest homicide rate in the world. And there's a very, very significant corruption problem. So all of these things, you know, people are protesting um, all of these things to change.
0: Absolutely. And the, the protests are definitely intense there. Um, you know, we, we definitely need to talk about some solutions and and what the what the U.S. can and should be doing uh, to sort of quell the, the chaos and, and the situation that's going on there. But before we do, we need to take a quick break. Break. Don't go anywhere. We will come back and continue this conversation about Venezuela and the crisis. The world, such a funny thing for me to try to explain. And we are back. This is let your voice be heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Speaking about crazy and love. It seems like the world is just going crazy and we have Mr. Crazy himself at the helm of America. Um yeah. But we're not we're not going to go on off on a riff on Donald Trump yet. Right now we are focusing on Venezuela and the crisis and the situation that is going on there. We have a very special guest on the line with us. Her name is Jen Jennifer McCoy, she is a distinguished professor at of political science at Georgia State University. She's also the author of International Mediation in Venezuela. And um, before we left off, I know that, Alyssa, you had a question for uh, Jennifer.
1: Yes. So, Jennifer, uh, there obviously throughout history and recent history, at least, has been a lot of U.S. involvement in Latin America, whether covertly or overtly. Um, And the U.S. involvement in those places has obviously influenced how things have proceeded. So I was hoping that you could just speak for a second about um, what, if any, role the U.S. has played in the crisis in Venezuela, either historically or more currently. Um, and then also answer the question of what, if anything, there we can do to make the situation better um, if there's things that we in the past have done to make the situation worse.
3: Yeah, well, you're right that in the past, you know, in the 20th century, there there was a lot of U.S. intervention in Latin America. Um, with Venezuela, uh, starting with, with President Chavez's mandate, he the relations have been really tense with the U.S., but especially since... There was a coup attempt against him in 2002 by within his own country. Um, and the United States sort of applauded that coup attempt. And it, it was put down. He was brought back to office after just two days. But after that, he never trusted the United States. He, you know, even said that the United States was behind the coup attempt. So that hasn't been proven. But the fact that the United States seemed happy about the coup attempt, you know, really set off uh, incredibly tense relations that have continued up to, up to this point. So it, we have a very strange relationship with Venezuela because while we don't have ambassadors in each other's countries, so we have, you know, limited diplomatic relations, uh, and we've had insults going back and forth between our presidents and their presidents and this kind of thing. We have never cut off the economic relationship, which is the United States has always imported oil from Venezuela. It's been an important source of oil for the United States, and that has never been interrupted. And then, right now, one of the you know controversies of the moment is also has to do with the the bonds and and the debt that Venezuela owes, because um, what they have tried to do to partly solve this problem of the food and the medicines and the imports is they've had to rely on oil money, you know, to import all these things because they're not producing enough in the country. Um, But in order to afford that, when the oil prices went down, they had to borrow more and more money. And so there's a lot of debt that the Venezuelan government owes to international creditors. They keep paying that debt because they're afraid that if they don't, their main cash cow, which is their oil company called Pedevesa and an affiliate in the United States, Citgo, the oil, the gas stations, Citgos, um, are owned by Venezuela. They're afraid they could be taken to pay back the creditors. You know, they, they could be confiscated. So Venezuela keeps paying back its debt. So with the U.S., there is this, you know, there are debt payments, and then there's the oil that has never been interrupted. Um, so what can the U.S. do? The U.S., When it attacks Venezuela verbally, or if it tried to put on sanctions for the whole country, you know, like cut off oil imports, um, what the Venezuelan government has been able to do is to say, oh, that's our boogeyman. That's the scapegoat. The United States is causing all of the problems in our country, and that's... Uh, allows the Venezuelan government to kind of get its supporters to rally around itself and blame the problems on the United States. So the United States has been pretty wise, both under Obama and now even uh, under Trump as well, to be more restrained and to not you know to not do that. And instead, it's been trying to work with the other countries in the hemisphere through The Organization of American States, which is like the regional UN, um, and to work with other countries to try to pressure Venezuela to allow in humanitarian aid and to hold the elections it's supposed to. So I think that's the best way to go. You know, putting on sanctions on the whole country is not a good idea. They've put on sanctions on some individuals who are accused of human rights abuses and of really extreme corruption. They've done that. Um, but that creates another problem, which we could talk about if you want to.
0: Um, guys, if you are listening and you have a question or a comment about the crisis in Venezuela, feel free to give us a call at 212-650-6903. You can also continue to leave your comments on our Facebook Live as well as Twitter. Um, and you can tweet us at Heard underscore radio. So... You, so um, Uh, Jennifer, you were talking about uh, the debt, the debt that uh, the debt that uh, Venezuela owes. And, um, you know, it it seems like Goldman Sachs is actually trying to make a quick buck off of this debt. Um, So as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, uh, Goldman Sachs has decided to buy over eight hundred and fifty million dollars worth of Venezuela government owned bonds. Uh, They would probably make a huge profit profit from this. Uh, and a lot of critics are saying that what Goldman is doing is, is, is supporting an oppressive regime and just to make money. But on the other hand, Goldman Sachs says, no, we brought the bonds through a broker, not the Venezuelan government, number one. And they say, number two, the crisis is going to get better. Um, so it more than likely is going to get better. So what what do you say about this, uh, Jennifer?
3: Well, it it is unseemly in that what what they did, no matter who they bought it from, they're providing cash to a government that's desperate for cash at this moment. So, from the Venezuelan government point of view, it seems like an incredibly um, bad deal, and that you know they're receiving 850 million in cash, but will have to pay back within five years, 2.5 billion. So yes, Goldman Sachs, you know, as an investment company, and these were part of their asset management. So you know, like pension funds and stuff. Um, We're just making an investment, and that's what they're supposed to do, and produce profit for their clients. So, you know, they they can say that. But um, what they were doing, but but from the Venezuelan government point of view, you know, they're getting an inflow of cash, a stream of cash that they desperately need right now. And so that's why the opposition in Venezuela is saying this is – they're calling them hunger bonds. You know, this is – you're creating more hunger for our people – and creating this huge debt that the that the Venezuelans are going to have to repay. And uh so it's uh, there was another article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal that actually said, you know, within Goldman Sachs there's some concern as well about the hit on their reputation for doing this. So I don't know if there'll be any reaction. But it is it's it's a contradiction between kind of the you know the profit motive of of an investment bank and investors and and assets and all of this, and then the political side of what do you do for a country that is really struggling, you know, and how do you, should you profit off of that? So there's kind of a moral side of it that may be in contradiction to the basic economic functioning of capitalism.
0: I, I mean, absolutely. And if you think about it, Goldman Sachs is one of the companies that brought us down in 2008 during our economic downturn. So, I mean, I mean, even like from a, a publicity standpoint, it just doesn't look good. It's not morale. And I think that that country I mean, I think that Goldman Sachs is a company should have learned by now that, hey, you might want to be a little more ethical uh, instead of just functioning off of. Your corporate greed I don't know That's just my take on that I know Alyssa wanted to chime in Yeah
1: I mean But they're never going to Learn that lesson Because at the end of the day They're a bank They're a big investment bank Their whole goal Is to make money For their shareholders They have a fiduciary duty To make money for them So Thank you I mean, capitalism like, Yeah that, <laughs> exactly And that's why There's no moral imperative To do the right thing But speaking of Do the right thing You know This may be a little Out of the box type of question But there was a movement um, Post Occupy Wall Street Here in the United States There was this thing That got started It was called The Rolling juice. And essentially, what it was was people, Americans, liberals mostly, buying debt at pennies on the dollar—credit um, card debt, medical debt, other debts of people. I don't think student loan debt was something that could be bought. And then doing and then abolishing it, which is essentially saying we're not going to collect it, and sending people letters in the mail saying we have a. I, I bought your debt. I have abolished your debt. Where most companies buy the debt, and then you know these collections companies buy the debt, and then they try and collect on the debt, and that's how they made their money. These people were doing the. Morally right thing and for the social good They were buying the debt and getting rid of it And I wonder, and I guess the question is Would something like that work in Venezuela If somebody like me or Selena Or a group wanted to start Some kind of thing, would we be able to Buy debt, Venezuelan debt, the way Goldman Sachs is buying it and just Abolish it and try and help Venezuela Out in that way? Is that something that is Possible? Yeah,
3: that's You know, that's really interesting. I, I think there are Two things. Well, there's three points, but there's Two options of action this one that you're talking about forgiving the debt, basically, and yes, Correct. people people can buy uh, into the debt at least through their own, you know, um, stockholders that you know control um, that that can get access to this this kind of debt and bonds through a mutual fund or something. Um, you could do that. Um, but what I'm thinking of in the past, two things. One, Latin America went through a debt crisis in the 1980s where they had huge foreign debt payments owed. And what the governments did eventually was to negotiate with the banks and with the other governments like the United States and Europe to forgive a large portion of that debt because it was putting a huge burden on the people when they had to, when the countries had to spend their money on the debt repayment and the interest rather than on you know, the welfare of the people. So they were able to renegotiate that in the early 90s. Um, The second example is with South Africa. I don't know if you remember, but when they had apartheid, there was a big movement in the United States to pressure investors, you know, and and companies like Goldman Sachs and and, and through the pension funds and the investment funds uh, to stop, and, and companies directly, to stop investing in South Africa, while apartheid was going on so that was a big kind of citizen movement to change the nature of that and that had that did have an effect on on South Africa and helped to push them toward negotiating the end of apartheid so you kind of have those those two options but there is a third point and that is that the Venezuelan government can say well if we don't get these kind of cash inflows then we can't afford to import the food that we need for our people. So, you know, they can, they make that point as well. But I think that this problem of they are indebting their own country for these huge profits, as you discussed, you know, in the future. So within five years, you know, they're mortgaging all of the assets of the countries to stay afloat in the very short term and to stay in power for the very short term. So the alternative would be, the better alternative would be to negotiate both with the opposition and with foreign creditors let's get a solution to this whole problem and let's n- stop mortgaging our country just so we can stay in power in the very short term
0: um so, so so you know jennifer um as we bring this discussion to a close i think back about at how just a few years ago uh hugo chavez was heralded by left by people on the mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. as uh, leading a country that was a model of democratic socialist. I mean, people like Michael Moore praise Venezuela, even Bernie Sanders. Uh, I myself, too. I remember we did a whole segment, um, just you know, praising him after uh, praising uh, Hugo Chavez after he died in 2013. Uh, do you think that the country will ever be able to ascend to its former glory?
3: It's going to take a long time to recover. Take a very long time, both to recover on the economic side, the productivity, the ability to produce, and and the capability, but even more, I think, on the kind of social side, the human side, to recover for people to come together, to reconcile, to forgive each other, and to be able to live and work together with a collective vision. I think that's going to be, you know, the trauma that the country is is going through is going to be the most difficult thing to overcome.
0: Uh, Agreed there. Uh, Jennifer, please tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you uh, and a copy of your book about Venezuela.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, the book's available on Amazon or through U.S. Institute of Peace um, Press. And it's uh, international mediation in uh, Venezuela. And my Twitter handle is mccoy.
0: Thank Thank you. you, Thank you again, Professor McCoy, guys. And I just wanted to uh, leave everyone with this. So uh, last year, according to statistics, the average Venezuelan living in extreme poverty lost nearly 20 pounds. Uh, The shortages are extreme. 60% of Venezuelans said that they have to skip one meal a day. And President Maduro actually uh, jokingly made a joke about the Maduro diet. This is nothing to joke about people. People are literally starving. Children are literally starving. So, I mean, you know, politics aside, um, economic and corporate greed aside, uh, people are dying. And I think that it's time for us to take a human interest in what's going on. I mean, this country once flourished. It once thrived. And I think that, like, as... um, Uh, jennifer mccoy told us it can ascend to to that place it can become stable again but it might need some help and the help that they need is not from goldman sachs trying to buy up the bonds to make a profit to make a quick buck off of 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 this of the debt so we'll continue to follow uh, venezuela uh, and this crisis um of course there are a number of uh organizations who are trying to help them on the grounds like the red cross and i would encourage everyone to look more into it and if you can donate. at least or at least tweet or or find out or read about it so that this does not and these people are not ignored on that note we do have to take a quick break but don't go anywhere when we come back Alyssa will be giving us a quickie slash rant about the why the world is going to burn in hell no I'm just kidding I'm just kidding we're just going to talk about the Paris uh peace agreement under the Paris climate agreement that was unfortunately that we unfortunately have withdrawn from don't go anywhere this is let your voice be heard and we are back so on thursday the
1: so-called president announced that the united states was officially going to withdraw from the paris climate agreement the move immediately provoked a sharp backlash from the rest of the world from leaders in germany and in france and also in china and in india and it is a major setback for international efforts to avert drastic global warming Now, in 2016, carbon dioxide levels actually rose to their highest levels in over 10,000 years. And this increase matched the record rise that was recorded in 2015 when the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere officially passed the point of no return which is the point in which climate change becomes irreversible. Scientific studies show that if the world's carbon emissions continued unchecked, atmospheric temperatures and sea levels were continued to rise. The planet will not just get hotter. We will also suffer from catastrophic rising sea levels, increasingly powerful storms, droughts, Food shortages and other extreme conditions. So if you think you're going to be on the Madero diet, you're going to be on the global climate change diet because there's going to be no food, which is going to lead to mass forced migration, conflicts and wars that arise from forced migrations and eventually total economical and societal collapse. 99.9% of the species that has ever lived on this planet are now extinct. Humans will be no exception if we do not do any something about this. And for the local folks, New York City will be completely underwater. There was a scary, scary image going around the Internet that an artist did that showed what would happen if the global sea level rose and if New York City was underwater. I do not want to be alarmist. However, I am alarmed. So, First things first. What is the Paris Agreement in brief? Now, I already did a quickie about this, so I'm not going to go over this in detail. But suffice to say, in December of 2015, nearly every country in the world, 195 countries in all, agreed to the first global pact aimed at reducing emissions of the planet's global warming of greenhouse gases. This was a landmark diplomatic achievement, and it was the center of President Obama's environmental agenda. The idea of the Paris Accord was that every country, no matter whether how rich or how poor, would set goals to curb carbon emissions in an effort to avert the worst effects of climate change. Prior to the agreement, the world's nations had already been struggling to reduce emissions deeply, enough to prevent global average temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you here in the United States, above pre-industrial levels. This threshold is deemed unacceptably risky. The Paris deal was meant to provide a structure to ratchet up efforts over time to reduce the global temperature. The big question now that the U.S. is leaving is how will countries respond to Mr. Trump's withdrawal? Will they keep pressing ahead with climate action anyway, or will the accord start to unravel, which will lead to the problems that I mentioned at the beginning of the segment? What does this mean for the United States? The Paris climate deal was designed to work through voluntary action and through peer pressure rather than through legislation and legislative pressure. Because it was never ratified as a treaty by the Senate, the United States will face very few barriers trying to leave the uh, the agreement, which is very scary. However, the Trump administration's plan to invoke the Accord's formal withdrawal mechanism means that the winding down process will take four years and it will not be officially completed until November 4th, 2020. Well, guess what? That's actually the day. After the next presidential election Which means that If somebody like a Democrat Is elected in the next election We may not actually leave the agreement And that would mean we could make this A future campaign issue And a future administration could choose to rejoin The convention and the accord The United States will nonetheless Still remain a party to the UN's framework Convention on climate change And in theory could still participate In future UN-sponsored climate discussions However, the so-called president says he will not abide by any of the United States' previous commitments under the Paris Agreement, and he will not rejoin the accord if, unless it is drastically renegotiated, which is highly unlikely. In the meantime, the Trump administration will keep pushing to dismantle domestic climate policies, such as Barack Obama's clean power plant, which, side note, was already sort of being held up by the courts, um, and also will work to roll back various regulations with which prevent— um, leaks about gas and oil. However, these rollbacks, these regulations and these other things that Trump plans to do, um, they may not happen either because environmental groups are going to challenge them in court. And the courts may actually rule that Donald Trump is not allowed to get us out of them. And pulling out of the Paris climate deal will not Mean that it was the end of all democratic and domestic efforts to address climate change. States like California and New York will keep pursuing their own programs to reduce emissions from power plants and vehicles. And the private sector is actually shifting towards cleaner energy regardless because. People like ExxonMobil and BP and all these big oil and gas companies, and also companies like Coca Cola, Amazon, and other entities, are realizing that climate change is affecting their bottom line. And so they are working very, very hard to fight climate change as well. In fact, Coca Cola is doing a big part in fighting climate change because a global drought means no water and no water means no Coca-Cola. And so Coca-Cola is very, very interested in the climate change. So we are going to still see a lot of pressure, believe it or not, from some of these corporations that we in other areas see as our enemies, working with us to try and combat climate change. Um, The U.S. government will nonetheless be doing far less about global warming than it might otherwise have done to cut greenhouse emissions. And despite Trump's lies about how our participation is a job killer, the decision actually will end up harming the U.S. economy because as the world transitions from fossil fuels And the fossil fuel market starts going down and the huge market for um, wind and solar and electric goes up. This market in renewables is estimated to be six trillion dollars by 2030, which means the decision to leave the agreement will end up pushing jobs in clean energy and technology to our overseas competitors. And there will be less jobs for Americans. What might other countries do? Leaders in China, India, and Europe have suggested that they will carry out tackling global warming, even without the United States, but whether they will actually do that remains an open question. One possibility is that the world's second larger emitter pulling out, other countries may feel less pressured to step up their own plans to curb global warming. Meanwhile, a core part of the Paris deal involves the United States promising $3 billion to poorer countries to help to expand their clean energy efforts and adapt um, to sea level and droughts that are already happening, and the Obama administration had already chipped in $1 billion, as have other nations. But Donald Trump has vowed to cancel all future payments, and developing nations in Africa and Asia may now prove less eager to tackle their emissions as a result. However, not everybody is so pessimistic. Some climate policy experts actually say that the shock of the United States withdrawing could actually spur other countries to redouble their climate efforts, and the United States could face serious repercussions for leaving, such as carbon tariffs imposed by European countries. What does this all mean for climate change as a whole? The 2015 Paris Agreement was meant to be the first step in a long process of slowing climate change. Countries put forth their individual pledges in the hopes of avoiding global warming. Now the world can avoid that fate, but it's going to depend on countries like China, which is the world's largest emitter, and although China wants to assume a dominant role and they are heavily investing in wind, solar, and nuclear power, it is unclear how far China and other countries like India will go to pressure under countries to raise their ambitions, and we don't know exactly what it How much power Europe has to press this In closing, the United States' contribution To the emissions goal was substantial While other countries have pledged to continue Their programs with or without American participation Our participation was crucial Um, Things are going to be bad And they're going to be scary But we must focus on letting this decision galvanize us Instead of letting us get it down A future administration, as I said Could always change the direction on climate policy And even try to rejoin the, the agreement This means it is even more important For us to vote, for us to resist for us to speak out on these issues and for us to put pressure on our elected officials and for us to primary those elected officials who are not going to do anything about this issue. We are going to be the people who go to the polls in 2018, and we are going to be the people that go to the polls in 2020. We know that the day after the election is the final day that we're going to be out. And guess what? If a Democrat wins the election, they're going to keep us in the agreement. And if Democrats win in 2018, they're going to keep us in the agreement. So you need to keep speaking out, keep calling your elected officials, and most importantly, you need to go out and vote in 2018 and in 2020. Vote, vote, vote. It's so important. It's going to make a difference to what happens with the Powers Accord.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Alyssa, for that powerful closing, and just breaking down, uh, you know, and even shedding shedding light on. how the exit from the Paris Agreement might not be as detrimental. And we can still, we still can do something. As Alyssa said, we can still vote and we can stop. We can stop us from withdrawing uh, in full if we go to the polls in 2018 and 2020. So there's some light there, guy. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. We just got to look hard enough and we need to stay positive. We need to stay motivated and we definitely need to continue to vote and register other people to vote. On that note, we want to thank everyone for tuning in and chiming in. to let your voice be heard today. We had a great time talking about democratic socialism, talking about Venezuela and talking about the paris climate agreement guys if you want to listen to this show again you can listen by subscribing to our itunes subscribing to us via itunes at let your voice be heard and again check us out online at lyvbh radio now up next we have the underdog show featuring gregory he is coming in and he's coming up next right here on whcr don't go anywhere and we'll see you next sunday god willing